0: seats and let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 1, the first Psalm. It's actually not Psalm 1 in the Hebrew Old Testament. It doesn't have a number. There are 149 Psalms in the Hebrew Old Testament and Psalm 1 is sort of the introduction. It's the author's way of saying if you want to understand the other 149, this is the one you have to get down first. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. We're going to study Psalm 1 this morning. There was a confluence of events. The first one was that Andrew last week in a Sunday school lesson mentioned, mentioned Psalm 1. The second one was that I, I took a trip to a Hobby Lobby, um, which as I get older, I appreciate more and more. Um, I didn't. My mom used to take me to Hobby Lobby, and it was a fate worse than death. Um, But now I go to Hobby Lobby and I kind of like it. They've got all these specialty items for professional trades and very I I have an appreciation for fine precision instruments and there's many of them there. I was in fact looking for a very specific pencil that has two millimeter lead. And uh, I was going to get this drafting pencil. And while I was walking around the the Hobby Lobby, I, I saw a shirt. Or maybe it was a pillow, or maybe it was a picture. I can't remember what it was. I'm sure you've seen the print. It says, blessed, or blessed on it. And that got me thinking. Well, what does it mean to be blessed? Who's doing the blessing? Would you give that throw pillow to somebody who's in the cancer ward? What does it mean to be blessed, and who does the blessing? And this, my friends, is why my wife does not accompany me to chips to Hobby Lobby. Okay, I start asking dumb questions. Well, I got to thinking. I was like, you know what? There is an answer to all those questions. Being blessed is a wonderful thing, and it's a godly and good thing. There's a preacher. I'm sure most of you have heard him on the radio. His name's Alistair Begg. He's out of Cleveland. He's got a, he's from, uh, I think it's Scotland, and he's got this, lovely accent, and he's he's very funny, excellent preacher. And he says that the preacher's job is not so much to convey new information to the congregation, but to remind them of the things they must never, ever forget. And so Psalm 1 is one of those psalms. Psalm 1 is one of these truths that Christians must never, ever forget. We must constantly go back to what it means to follow God, what it means to be a blessed person. So let's read Psalm 1, and then we're going to cover five traits of the blessed. Five traits of the blessed. Psalm 1. Now it says, blessed is the man, but I want you to know that this could be blessed is the person, blessed is the one, blessed is anybody. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Let's pause right there. We're not going to talk too much about it this morning, but notice the progression. There is a natural progression that the writer is attempting to bring out. There's the walking and standing and sitting. There's a walking by. There's a standing and taking note, and then there's a sitting down and taking part. The writer is definitely wanting to draw our attention to this progression that takes place when we start listening to the wrong voices? Well, the blessed person doesn't do any of those things. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree. Now, our translation here says planted, but if you wanted to take your pencil and write a few little letters in front of planted and write transplanted, That would probably be a bit more of an accurate translation. Transplanted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray one last time, and then we'll get started. Father, give us grace to understand this first psalm. It is such a delight. And I pray that we would be people who undergo your transformational blessing. And I pray that we would embody these traits. for we pray these things. Jesus' name. Amen. The blessed man. The first words of this psalm, blessed man. There actually is no Hebrew verb in there. And the first word is blessed. Blessed. The blessed man. This is a psalm about blessing. A blessed person. A person who is under the direct blessing of God. Well, what does that mean to be blessed? Well, it's the Hebrew word asherah, and it means happy or privileged. It's a person who is both honored and honorable. This is a, a unique object, a person who is a unique object of God's mercy and grace and kindness. It's hard to assign any one Word or definition point on the word "blessed," because it can refer to a, a sort of variety, a color wheel of meanings. It does have to do with this sort of objective state of blessedness. Okay, you can look at a person's dwelling and say, "Oh, this person is particularly blessed. They're situated. Their lines have fallen in pleasant places," as the psalmist will later say. There's the subjective side of blessedness, which is sort of this happiness, this joyfulness. Whatever the case, this is a person who is recognized as having come underneath of the blessing of God. And that's the trick of this word. Oftentimes, the people who are blessed don't immediately recognize their state of blessedness. It takes outsiders looking in on them to say, wow, you are blessed. You are truly, you are truly blessed. Sometimes it takes an outsider's perspective for us to reflect, and that's sort of the idea in the Old Testament. It's a, it's an assessment that people make about you, not necessarily one that flows from within as you struggle through the battles of life. This psalm, this song, is an ode to the blessed man. It's an ode about the blessed man, from both the perspectives of people and the perspective of God. And I have five traits, five traits of the blessed. We're not going to take these verses, and we're not going to study this in verse order, for it's a poem. And you don't always study poems like that. A poem has a middle, and it has uh, poetic devices that you need to study, and if you take it in sort of linear format, you've violated how you're supposed to take it. So we're going to look at it more thematically, okay? So I want you to notice, first of all, first trait of the blessed, the blessed recognizes the godness of God. The blessed recognizes the godness of God. I don't know that godness is a word. I made up that word, but you'll see what I mean in a moment. The blessed, of course, acknowledges, doesn't just acknowledge, but assumes that God is there. He understands that God is to be an object of worship, that God has created, that God has placed, that God, in fact, has spoken this person understands that God has not spoken to us in terms of a slave owner to a slave. He's not giving us uh, certain bullet point lists of commands that we have to obey. It's actually a God, a, a, a great God, a relational God who's spoken to us with an offer of a relationship. This blessed person recognizes that God is there and that God has spoken and that God has come to us in a way to help us to commune with him. And we say, oh, I, I want to get to know that God. And I want that God to know me. This person who is blessed isn't afraid of the judgment to come. Well, even that's part of understanding the godness of god he recognizes there is a judgment to come there is a god who created there is a god who holds us accountable he doesn't buck against that accountability he doesn't rage in the face of this god as the next psalm psalm 2 will talk about this is a person who acknowledges the godness of god and brings himself underneath of it he says i want to fall under the authority of this God who's come to me in relational unity. Furthermore, this person recognizes and accepts the superiority of God's ways over other ways. He says, wait a minute. As I look at the ways of people and the ways of God, they're different. And right now, as I look at it, man's ways are in the majority. And if I'm going to follow God's ways, I'm going to have to walk some lonely miles. But because this person recognizes the godness of God, he realizes that if you threw him into the scale and you put all the billions of people that have ever lived to create this majority on the one side of the scale, and you put God on the other side of the scale, they don't even compare. This is like dropping a 500-pound man onto a teeter-totter with a toddler on the other side. It would just, poom, would not be a pretty sight. In fact, that's a bad illustration because God is so much higher than the mass of humanity than a 500-pounder is to a toddler. We've got, we've got a person who acknowledges that God makes a majority. His life is for this God who is great and good and kind and has spoken. His ways are superior even if they get mocked, even if they get scoffed, even if they get pushed back against. He recognizes that God's ways are superior and frankly, as we'll find out next, it doesn't bother him because he's not listening to the critics anyway. He can just let them go off and do their thing. He's not trying to correct them necessarily. He hears the chatter, but he immediately dismisses it because his life is lived for the audience of the one who really matters. And his life is for the audience of this great God. The godness of God has consumed him. And he wants a relationship with this God. As I said before, he recognizes that this God, this great, relational, kind God, is going to bring us all into account. And he's not afraid of it. He's not afraid of it. He's been redeemed. He recognizes this. This God, who is great and good and kind, has made a way for us to have a relationship with him. And he trusts God's words that we can have a relationship. And so he's pursuing God in this life that ignores the majority. And that brings us to our second trait of the blessed man. He recognizes the godness of God, number one. And number two, he's a disciplined thinker. Okay, The blessed man is a disciplined thinker. Let's go right here to um, verse 1. How blessed is the man, a blessed man, blessed man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers there is certainly a pattern of thought that this man is wanting to avoid. The word counsel literally means verbal counsel. I, the, the blessed man understands that there's a lot of voices out there telling him bad ways to go. And he's not listening to them. Furthermore, he recognizes that there are certain thoughts that are completely and totally unworthy of his consideration and dialogue. And that in our day is really gonna run is really gonna run counter to our culture, our particular culture here. We're told by the world, by the wicked, by sinners, that what we really need to do is enter into dialogue and listen to the perspective, it's called perspectivalism, listen to the perspective of people whose ways are totally, completely antithetical to God and truth, and that for you to be righteous, for you to love your neighbor, you'll sit and listen, and really listen, and I want you to know you don't have to. That's not a spiritual thing to do. It's not a godly kind of thing to do. There are certain things you just don't have to listen to, and it's not godly to listen to it. And you don't have to apologize for that or excuse it. If somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm um, I'm this, that, or the other, and you have very clear Bible evidence that that is not the way to go. So plain in God's Word, you can just say, well, bless you, but I'm going that way. You don't have to listen. You don't have to. It's not a mark of spirituality, though the world will tell you. They'll call you narrow-minded. They'll call you unlistening. Now, of course, we let every man be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. There are times, of course, when listening is the way to go, but it's not kind to God to listen to things that so clearly... Oppose him. Okay? God said, I created the heavens and the earth and all that's in it. Those are his very first words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And somebody comes along and says, actually, God is a made-up construction of social creation. And... Your understanding of God is an elevation of man and all his good capacities. And it's a social construct for the weak to come along and place their faith into a supreme being to supply meaning for. I hope you guys tuned me out about 20 seconds ago. Okay? As you should have. It so clearly contradicts what God says you don't. It's not a mark of spirituality to listen. Now, of course, there are scholars, philosophers, whose job it is to listen to that so we don't have to. Okay. <laughs> Just the blessed man knows what not to listen to. And he doesn't have to. She doesn't have to. You don't have to put up with it. Let me liberate you from feeling like you have to. In fact, you're commanded not. There you go. <laughs> Spend your afternoon doing something worthy. <laughs> Furthermore, the blessed man is not required to confront every one of these things. You know, I've had a lot of arguments in my head with people that disagree with me. I say in my head because how many of those arguments have I actually had? <laughs> very, very few by comparison. It's good to be thoughtful. You want to have a thoughtful response. But we can border on the edge of morbid, can't we? You know, in fact, when it comes to the scoffer, we actually have strong Bible evidence not to say a word to them. Proverbs 9, 7, and 8. Proverbs 13, 1. Proverbs 15, 1. Proverbs 21, 24. All of those advise us not to waste our time on scoffers. Why rebuke a scoffer? All you will do is get stripes for it. Rebuke a scoffer and he will hate you. Scoffers do not seek the counsel of the wise, they avoid it, says Proverbs 15.12. So why waste your words, is the conclusion that the wisest man who ever lived makes. I want to relieve Christians from the burden of feeling like they have to go around and confront every way, every sinful way, every scoffing way that they see. And they have to confront it mentally and so forth. And that is not necessarily what the blessed man does. The blessed man is disciplined in his thinking. He avoids scoffing type thinking. He hears it, but gives it no thought, test that. I'd like to also point out that the blessed man understands the sort of dangerous in-between. Okay, He knows, or she knows, how to make use of the good, but not great. The so-so. We can spend so much of our time piling into our minds the so-so's of life, the good things but not great things, that in proportion, those are the things that begin to dominate our thinking, and though they're not inherently sinful or wrong or anything like that, there is a best way. Now, I'm not saying at all that you can't go enjoy this hobby or that, or that television show or this. I am saying that the blessed man understands the proportion of what's best to think about. So what does the blessed person think on? Well, right here. It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man spends considerable time mulling over the word of God. The blessed man spends considerable time mulling over God's words. Now, what does it mean right here to delight? Let me give you a couple of cross-references that will help you remember what it means to delight. So what's my relationship supposed to be to this book? Well, you need to write down Proverbs 31, 13. Proverbs 31, 13. Now, you ladies in here, immediately when I say Proverbs 31, what, what comes to your mind? the virtuous woman well what is she doing in verse 13 that should get your attention it says that the virtuous woman m- makes handsome clothing for her family and then she stands back looks at her family and the work of her hands and the handsomeness in which they're dressed and the 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 effectiveness that it creates and it's it's utilitarian it's beautiful it's all of those things all at once and she stands back and her heart is satisfied okay how many of you ladies like to do interior decorating you get a, 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 a plan in your mind you scour through some of the magazines or you know go through internet probably now more than magazines and you get an idea in your head of what you want, and you, it, it takes months, doesn't it? You get all the supplies, you build the stuff, you get it there, and then, and then finally, it's all ready, and you put the final, let's say, the vase on the table, and you take a step back. It's perfect. It's exactly what you envisioned. And the smile comes over your face. That moment is this word. What would you call that, ladies who've done this? Help me out. What would you call that? What word would you put on that? Satisfaction. Is that the word you other ladies would have put on it? Yeah, All right, that is good. That's the relationship we're supposed to have to this world Or you want to write down Song of Solomon two seven, or three five, or eight four. This is the word for a young couple that has saved themselves from marriage. They get married and on their honeymoon, they enjoy blessed embracing of one another while on their honeymoon. And it's just this unity, wholeness, happiness and it's like it was always meant to be, it is delighting. They delight in each other. And that's our word. Right here. There's a good and appropriate time. There's a satisfaction, a love, a delight. The blessed person has that sort of relationship with God's Word, it's not fearful to them. It's not a source of frustration or failure. It's not a source of, um, I may have used the word frustration. It, I think that's most people's relationship with the Word of God. It's a reminder of failure and frustration. And God says, I don't want it to be like that. I don't want it to." I want you to delight in it. How do you get to the point of delighting in it? Well, keep reading. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on the law, he meditates. He meditates day, day and night. This word meditate, we've got a perfect example of it right now in our at the Baker House. We uh, had a, a mouse problem in the fields down below us for a bunch of years. It was impossible to keep him out of the garage. And I got tired of them chewing up my little electrical cords and chewing up stuff from underneath my car. So we, we got some barn cats. Well, let me tell you something about barn cats. Barn cats have a very short life expectancy. OK? I'm just telling you the truth of barn cats. Barn cats tend to die in very spectacular ways. OK? <laughs> Again, an inconvenient truth of barn cats. Okay. So we just sort of keep a steady supply of barn cats. Kind of like a major league baseball team has the farm system, you know, so that when the ace reliever blows up his elbow like they all do, they're like, "Okay, we'll call the kid up from the minor leagues." We we have to keep a system of future barn cats that will hunt mice because the end is near to <laughs> the ones that are killing the little rodents. We stopped naming them, okay? Like, I think my daughter Charlotte still names them, but the rest of us just call them the gray cat, or the black cat, or the white cat. At any rate, our cats, our barn cats, so we've got kittens right now. We've got one cat that's a great mouser. She, she'll kill anything. She was stalking a deer the other day. <laughs> we were like, all right, you go for it. <laughs> you want to well she's been on a gopher tear just going and getting gophers and the other day she got a gopher she laid it down where her little kittens are and all the little kittens had surrounded the gopher and they were they were licking it. and when you approached the kittens instinctively lowered down and growled they growled over their kill. That's the word, meditate, believe it or not, the growl. This refers to a person who's deep in thought, and they don't know it, but they're talking to themselves. My wife makes this face and utters these words when she's doing the wordle puzzle every morning, and she purses her lips like this. And I know she's doing Wordle, OK? And then she'll, she'll start saying words out loud. She'll say, no. And I can hear her say, no, the H isn't there. Is, S isn't there. She's, she's rehearsing the words that she knows and the letters that she's used. She's deep in concentration. And, and I'll have to say, hey, Danielle. And, and the first Danielle doesn't get through. You know, hey, Danielle. And then, and oh, oh, yes. I, I pull her from a deep well of concentration. I do the same thing when I'm playing Wordle or whatever. And that's the word. That's the word. The blessed person is immersed in meditation on the word of God and thinking it through. Why did Noah sacrifice all those animals that he cared painstakingly for for a year? What was going through his mind that made him instinctively give those animals back to God? Why was it that that rose is a sweet-smelling savor to God who took such great pains to preserve him? What is what is revealed about God in that story? And you start ruminating and meditating and thinking about it. What does it mean that Isaac prayed for his wife Having trouble conceiving, and he sought, he sought the Lord on her behalf. Wonder what that sounded like. How would the son of Abraham pray? Start to think about that. You get deep in thought, and you learn to love the connections that you find in the Word of God. It becomes your delight. The third trait of the blessed man, we have to get through this very quickly. I started waxing elephants about barn cats and their short lives. The blessed man experiences God's way of blessing, he experiences God's way of blessing. Word here is that he's like a tree who's planted by. Streams of water, I told you before that the word doesn't mean plant so much as it means transplant. There's an existing tree that God picks up and moves over here, and he puts it right down in a strategic place. It's not just a strategic place for the tree, but actually the word streams doesn't mean la natural stream. This is a canal stream. We understand this here in Utah because many of us are still sort of on a ditch irrigation system, aren't we? There's an artificial man-made ditch that runs through your backyard or right down the road. And you may have noticed that the largest trees in the valley, these huge cottonwood trees, grow all up the sides of those canals, don't they? In fact, many of the farmers cut them out because they get too big and too strong and take up too much water. God says, "I I plant this tree next to... I strategically plant the next to a strategic stream. It's all planned out in the thought of God, and this person falls under God's blessings. The person experiences seasons. It's a seasonal life, a blessed life. There are seasons of fruitfulness, of course. We find out that the tree does have to undergo heat. It does, its leaf doesn't wither. It's not as though it's completely removed from the difficulties of life. It's not removed from trials and troubles, but it's given the wherewithal to prosper despite them. And in many ways, according to John 15, we prosper because of them. It's God's active pruning. He removes undesirable elements from us all so that we will bear more fruit when the season comes. This is a blessedness that isn't a blessedness just for us. The type of blessedness that God pours out on his blessed man is, by definition, helpful to other people. When you're truly blessed of the Lord, he doesn't bless you to become an island unto yourself somewhere to be enjoyed only by you. No, you're a tree that provides shade to others and fruit to others. And the fruit and the shade and the blessing and the the kindness that you can show other people far outweighs what you could do of your own right there for yourself right there. A tree produces far more fruit than it itself needs. The tree is a blessing to all those who want to come underneath of it and enjoy it. God blesses us so that, for the purpose of being a blessing and a help to others. He's not blessing us. He's not blessing us in the fact that he keeps us from certain things. He blesses us through the struggle of the trial. He blesses us through the shock of the diagnosis. He blesses us when the winds blow. He blesses us when the waves come. But when we're founded on the word of God, we can prosper through that. Prosper in God's way. And that brings us to our fourth one, the blessed man prospers. He prospers. There's two reasons for that prosperity. A blessed man, one who's meditating, thinking, delighting in the Word of God, can't help but be changed by the Word of God. His or her work ethic becomes honest and true and detail oriented. He's not serving anymore for the praise of men, but for his God, and he does the right thing even when nobody's watching. He's honorable, he's trustworthy. He finishes things when he's supposed to. He doesn't make excuses for failure. He covers for his own mistakes out of his own pocket. And before long, this sort of unglamorous, redeemed way of doing business commends itself to everybody else. This person shows up on time. How many employers would want an employee who is honest and tries hard and shows up on time, and acts with integrity, and does their best, doesn't leave early, doesn't cut corners, and is honorable. How few, of, of, how few employees are like that in the workplace, right? You're in a minority if you simply do those things. So of course you're going to prosper on that level. But there's a different reason for the blessedness. There's a different reason for the prosperity. And it's that God desires to vindicate his ways. Again, we're not talking about prosperity in the sense of economy. We're not talking about prosperity in the sense of having a large 401k or a house with a certain square footage or driving a luxury car. God would be horrified to think that we associated that immediately with blessedness or prosperity, God's prosperity. What God is talking about is this sort of joyful, joyful, Fullness of a happy home, the blessed generosity, the big-hearted gratitude of quality relationships that one builds, the laughter around a dinner table, the blessedness of friends that come around each other during hard times, the sense of oneness that you feel with people that are joined together with you in purpose, in the purpose of serving God. When you look around you and see that you're surrounded by these other good people that are blessed, you say, wait a minute. This is the congregation of the righteous. And that's another mark of blessedness in the end, in the end, sinners get excluded from that congregation. And those who have given their lives, though it seems like they're in the minority, to following God in his ways are suddenly included with this great cloud of blessed people and friends and family for joyful interaction with their God. It's a blessed life. Last I'll say this very quickly. The blessed man, his way abides. His way abides. Chaff, here today, gone tomorrow. Chaff is driven. Chaff chases after things and fads and what have you. Chaff, no substance, no weight. It's driven and it's gone. Not so with the blessed man. The blessed person is known by God he knows God, she knows God loves satisfied by the word of God and that satisfaction creates the enjoyment of God and his things and the prosperity that the world the currency of a prosperity that the world doesn't trade in but that you completely understand and one day will be yours entirely. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would delight, meditate on your law. May we make it our portion and our thought. May we treasure it and be satisfied by it and then experience the blessings that you provide for it.